ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And now for our environmental headline stories. The Indiana Environmental Reporter says a pair of Purdue University professors have been appointed to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's newly reconstituted Scientific Advisory Board. Sylvie Browder, Professor of Agronomy and Wickersham Chair of Excellence in Agricultural Research, was appointed to the board and its Agricultural Sciences Committee. Dominique Evander Minsbrugge, Research Professor and Director of Purdue's Center for Global Trade Analysis, was appointed to the board and its Economic Analysis Committee. The two will join 45 other newly selected board members representing universities and business interests in reviewing proposed EPA actions. Quote, this highly qualified, diverse group of experts will ensure that EPA is receiving sound, science-based advice to inform our work to protect people and the environment from pollution, end quote, said EPA Administrator Michael S. Reagan. In a story originated by WFYI, city officials from Bloomington, Carmel, and West Lafayette, and other Indiana lawmakers sent a letter to Duke Energy urging the utility to make a faster transition to renewable energy. Some cities worry Duke will keep them from reaching their goals to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Among other things, the coalition wants Duke Energy to retire its Gibson coal plant by 2030, stop burning coal at its Edwardsport plant, and replace that energy through renewables and energy efficiency. Carmel Mayor Jim Brainerd said the city of Carmel has set a goal for all its city operations to be carbon neutral in about 30 years, but it probably can't achieve that goal without Duke's help. Brainerd said Carmel has already spent millions of dollars to upgrade its stormwater system to handle the heavy downpours it's been getting in recent years due to climate change. This summer, as in many parts of the state, wildfires in Canada and the western U.S made the air quality in Carmel unsafe for certain activities outside. The lawmakers who signed the letter also want the company to reduce the energy burden for its lower-income customers and clean up toxic coal ash in Indiana as thoroughly as it did in North Carolina. Quote, It's almost corporate criminality at this point that they are not lined and protected, as has been done by Duke in other places. End quote. Said Isabel Piedmont-Smith, 5th District Bloomington City Council member. Though Piedmont Smith said Bloomington doesn't have coal ash ponds, many Hoosiers around the state are vulnerable to having their groundwater contaminated by coal ash. 
In a last-ditch effort to prevent Enbridge's Line 3 Tar Sands Pipeline from going online, about 2,000 indigenous water protectors and their environmentalist allies rallied at the Minnesota State Capitol August 25th, and hundreds spent the night camping out on the State House grounds as police officers surrounded the building's perimeter, around which a chain-link fence had been installed because of the demonstration. The protest was part of a Treaties Not Tar Sands Week of action against Line 3. It followed the Minnesota Supreme Court's ruling letting stand state regulators' decision to approve construction of the multi-million dollar pipeline. The opponents of Line 3 are left with dwindling legal options to stop the pipeline, which will be able to transport about 750,000 barrels of oil per day from Alberta, Canada to Wisconsin, crossing hundreds of waterways and wetlands that it will contaminate if it leaks. With the pipeline expected to start carrying oil next month, water protectors are pledging to increase their opposition. So far, about 900 people have been arrested for civil disobedience. The police, funded by Enbridge, have responded violently to the protest. Originally approved by the Trump administration, Line 3 has met with approval by the Biden Justice Department. Environmentalists were enraged by the approval because they think it countered the Biden administration's pledge to treat the climate crisis as an existential emergency. One estimate indicates that Line 3 could have a climate impact equivalent to that of 50 new coal-fired power plants. There's an update on the Tongass National Forest in Alaska. The Biden administration is moving to restore full environmental protections, reversing an attempt by former President Donald J. Trump to introduce logging and mining in pristine sections of one of the world's largest intact temperate rainforests. The move, announced by the Agriculture Department, comes a month after the administration gave notice it would repeal or replace a rule promulgated under Mr. Trump to open about 9 million acres, or more than half of the forest, to development. That rule had stripped away protections that had been in place since 2001. The Biden administration's Tongass strategy includes a new safeguard, an end to large-scale logging of old-growth timber across the forest's entire 16 million acres. Alaskan lawmakers hoped that the administration might restore protections to some parts of the fragile forest, but leave a portion open to logging and other activities. But in a statement, the Agriculture Department, which houses the United States Forest Service, wrote that it is restoring the full protections to return stability and certainty to the fragile forest. The vast wilderness in southeastern Alaska is home to more than 400 species of wildlife, fish, and shellfish, including nesting bald eagles, moose, and the world's greatest concentration of black bears. Tucked between its snowy peaks, fords, and rushing rivers are stands of red and yellow cedar and western hemlock, as well as Sitka spruce trees that are at least 800 years old. A federal court in Alaska vacated the approval of a large oil and gas project known as the Willow Master Development Plan in Alaska's Western Arctic. The Trump administration had approved the project, and the Biden administration was defending it in court despite the administration's climate action pledges and temporary suspension of fossil fuel leasing on public lands. 
In its decision, the court held that the Bureau of Land Management had failed to properly consider the impacts of greenhouse gas emissions the project would generate in violation of the National Environmental Policy Act and to properly consider the impacts of the project on polar bears in violation of the Endangered Species Act. The oil company ConocoPhillips plan involved using giant chillers to refreeze thawing permafrost to ensure a solid drilling service. The project would also have entailed drilling up to 250 wells and building and operating a processing facility, hundreds of miles of ice roads, hundreds of miles of pipelines, an airstrip, and a gravel mine in the northeastern corner of the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska. Burning the estimated 590 million barrels of oil to be extracted during the life of the project would have resulted in nearly 280 million tons of greenhouse gas, the equivalent of nearly 65 coal plants operating for a year. The high temperatures in the northwest have contributed to distress in its trout fisheries. Few places in the world rival Montana's fly fishing and the state's formerly cold, clear mountain streams are renowned for their large populations of trout, especially the rainbow and brown. Trout need water temperatures below 70 degrees Fahrenheit to survive. Water temperatures at 75 degrees Fahrenheit will kill trout. In this drought year, a confluence of extreme conditions now threatens the state's legendary waters. Higher temperatures early in the year, worryingly low river levels, fish die-offs, and pressure from the crush of anglers yearning to recapture a year lost to the pandemic have swirled into a growing crisis. Recently, Montana announced a slate of new restrictions, including outright closures for some of the top trout streams. Fly fishing guides and environmentalists warned that the severe drought might not be a temporary problem and that the state's fisheries could be nearing collapse. The problem extends to salmon, which also need cold, clean water to flourish. Thirty years ago, there were several thousand salmon boats in California. More recently, as the fish became scarce, only a few hundred worked the coast. This year, for the first time, U.S. officials canceled all ocean salmon fishing off California, most of Oregon, and curtailed it off Washington for a $300 million loss. The sudden decline of California's Chinook salmon, most of which originate in the Sacramento River, has shaken scientists as well as fishermen. Typically, several hundred thousand adult fish return from the sea to the river in the fall. Last autumn, only about 90,000 made it back and fewer than 60,000 are expected this year, which would be the lowest number on record. Commercial salmon fishing will be closed in most of coastal British Columbia this year and into the foreseeable future to save the West Coast critically low fish stocks, the Canadian government announced recently. One reason for the closure is concern for whether there will be adequate salmon to feed the orca population. The orca population has dwindled for years, and authorities are concerned whether they can be saved. Nearly 60% of the Br British Columbia's commercial salmon fisheries, once the economic and cultural backbone of the British Columbia coast, will be forced to shutter in 2021, Fisheries and Oceans Canada said. Yukon Salmon Rivers will also be closed to all commercial fishing in 2021, 
while recreational fisheries in both Yukon and British Columbia will be restricted. Many of Br British Columbia's coastal fisheries will likely not reopen to commercial harvesting for years in an attempt to revive the province's dwindling salmon populations. Salmon populations and rivers flowing into the Gulf of Alaska are way down and the state has closed many rivers to fishing. The bright spot in the salmon fishery is Bristol Bay, which has produced a very good crop of king salmon this year. Bristol Bay is part of the Bering Sea, so the water is colder than that in the Gulf of Alaska. Coal is one of the world's worst sources of climate-destroying pollution. The Obama administration recognized this fact and implemented a moratorium on new federal coal leases. But the Trump administration undid the moratorium to protect polluter profits. Now, the Biden administration has announced it's taking another look at federal coal policies. Environmentalists are calling on the federal government to stop leasing coal from public lands. First, the coal leases would account for 16.3% of the U.S.'s annual emissions. Second, leases rates are significantly below market value, thus subsidizing the coal industry. Third, coal mining pollutes the water and air and destroys wildlife habitat on public lands. And fourth, industry hasn't complied with requirements to clean up and keep communities safe. More than 200 coal leases are coming up for renewal in the next four years, and if Biden doesn't act, they will be renewed under Trump's polluter-friendly rules. Biden can respond to the reality of the climate crisis by enacting a moratorium on coal leasing on federal lands. Insect populations are in decline worldwide. The loss is often rightfully linked to pesticide use, habitat loss, and the climate crisis. But there are other factors like artificial light at night, otherwise known as light pollution. Researchers recently told BBC News they have found the strongest evidence yet that nighttime lights are connected to the decline of local insect populations. In some areas, researchers found that the presence of artificial light at night decreased moth caterpillar numbers by almost 50%. LED lights have been particularly dangerous for the moths which raise concerns for scientists as those lights are becoming more widely used. Suggested solutions include a filter on the lights so that they look less like the sun or redirecting so that the lights illuminate roads and not the surrounding insect habitats. EPA's new announcement that it was ceasing to allow the insecticide clopyrifos on food is a victory. Clopyrifos is a neurotoxic carcinogen and endocrine disruptor. Its damage to children's brains is undisputed. The victory is undercut by the fact that EPA is continuing to allow non-food uses of clopyrifos in 1. residential containerized baits, 2. indoor areas where children won't be exposed, including only ship holds, railroad boxcars, industrial and manufacturing plants, and food processing plants, 3 outdoor areas where children won't be exposed, including only golf courses, road medians, and industrial plant sites, four, non-structural wood treatments including fence posts, utility poles, railroad ties, landscape timers, logs, pallets, wooden containers, posts, and processed wood products, five, public health situations including fire ant mounds, six, 
nurseries and greenhouses, and seven, mosquito control. According to Jay Feldman, director of Beyond Pesticides, quote, even in a victory like EPA's chlorpyrifos decision, the action is typically filled with exceptions that respond to vested corporate interests seeking to ignore or deflect the science, end quote. He went on to say, quote, we can and must use this occasion as an example of the abject failure of the current system and to advance systemic change that rejects toxic pesticides as a whole and moves society to the adoption of organic practices, end quote. In its waning days, the Trump administration approved a proposal to bulldoze a four-lane highway through Red Cliffs National Conservation Area in southwestern Utah, granting a right-of-way permit and record of decision for the highway. Environmentalists are urging Biden's Bureau of Land Management to rescind them. Congress created the Red Cliffs National Conservation Area in 2009 in recognition of its spectacular landscape of sculpted red rock canyons and arches and its importance to the survival of federally threatened wildlife like desert tortoises as well as its world-class hiking trails. Environmentalists say that's no place for a highway. Through the National Environmental Policy Act, the Bureau of Land Management analyzed two viable highway alternatives that wouldn't encroach on the conservation area. Those alternatives would cause little to no environmental impact. They are equal in cost or cheaper to construct. Building a highway right through Red Cliffs directly undermines the Biden administration's goal of boosting protected lands. The desert tortoise population in Red Cliffs continues to decline seriously. Running a four-lane highway through the animals' reserve would hasten their extinction. Granting a right-of-way through a congressionally designated national conservation area sets a dangerous precedent. If this project could happen in Red Cliffs, it could happen elsewhere. According to the Department of Energy, solar could supply more than 40% of the nation's electricity by 2035, up from 3% today if Congress adopts policies like tax credits for renewable energy projects and component factories, according to a memo published by the department. To propel solar to nearly half of U.S. generation, the industry needs to grow at three or four times its current rate, creating up to 1.5 million jobs, according to an unpublished analysis by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory cited in the memo. There's more evidence that bottom trawling for fish brought cod populations in the North Atlantic so low that they have not recovered. A simple fish stock assessment model applied to over 500 years of catch data demonstrated that if Canadian authorities had allowed for the rebuilding of the stock of northern Atlantic cod off Newfoundland and Labrador in the 1980s, annual catches of about 240,000 tons could have been sustained. A new study by researchers from the Sea Around Us initiative at the University of British Columbia, the Geomar Helmholtz Center for Ocean Research and Dalhousie University modeled the cod population trajectory for the entire period from 1508 to 2019. While the earlier fishery, which used hand lines and traps, was sustainable and generated catches of 120,000 to 100 
240,000 tons per year for 400 years, the unleashing in the 1960s of bottom trawlers onto the northern cod reduced their biomass to levels that could not sustain high catches. In the 1960s, trawlers could approach to within 12 miles of the land. The largest effort was by the USSR, who brought an entire fleet of ships to include the catchers, who brought their haul to a processing boat that prepared and froze everything, then transferred the product to ships that took the product back home. This allowed for uninterrupted fishing until there was virtually nothing left. This practice spurred nations to exclude foreign ships from fishing within 200 nautical miles of shore. The fishing for cod in the Grand Banks was closed in 1992. What was once the most productive fishery for cod has never recovered. Cod takes from the Gulf of Maine were also severely restricted in the 1990s, but the cod have never recovered. Cod were taken as bycatch by trawlers. Now the water temperatures in New England are too warm for cod, so what remains is moving north. Nearly 140 countries are backing a global plastics treaty. The United States isn't one of them. President Biden hasn't issued an endorsement, and the treaty discussions will start on September 1st at the UN Environmental Assembly's Ministerial Conference on Marine Litter and Plastic Pollution. The U.S. was the only G7 country that has not issued support for a plastics treaty before the international G7 summit in June. Two months later, the U.S. still hasn't stepped up to join leading nations in support of a pioneering global agreement to tackle plastic pollution. The U.S. needs to be part of treaty discussions because it's the headquarters of many of the world's biggest plastic polluters, like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo. The U.S. is facing a plastic pollution crisis that is impacting the planet and our communities at every step in plastic's life cycle. Besides poisoning the oceans and marine life with plastic waste, the fossil fuel industry, manufacturers of plastic, are fueling the climate crisis and harming black, brown, and frontline communities living in and near petrochemical facilities and extraction zones. A legally binding international global plastics treaty would minimize the production of new plastics, address the chronic environmental justice issues with plastic production and disposal, eliminate plastic pollution, reduce the plastic industry's massive climate footprint, protect human health, and accelerate the shift from throwaway plastic packaging to reuse. When performing autopsies on stranded and bycaught sea turtles of different species, researchers found a huge number of plastic pieces in the reptile stomachs, especially in baby turtles. Polyethylene and polypropylene were the two main kinds of plastics, both of them used in much single-use packaging. Published in Frontiers in Marine Science, the study revealed that the kinds of plastic that turtles ingest are found commonly near the ocean's surface, but break apart and spread throughout the water column. Plastic of different densities cover the ocean floor. Researchers found that green turtles ingested as much as 1% of their total body mass in plastic. Flatback turtles consumed as much as 2%. As Earther put it, quote, it's the equivalent of an NFL linebacker eating five pounds of plastic, end quote. Young turtles are especially vulnerable because they haven't learned to distinguish plastic debris from food. Plastics can kill young turtles in myriad ways, from lacerating and blocking their gastrointestinal tracts to causing malnutrition and chemical poisoning. Sometimes real turtle food, 
like algae, sticks to plastic and makes the turtles mistake the plastic for food from the odor. For Eco Report, I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And I'm Juliana Daly. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. The Natural Sound Series continues at the Highland Village Park out in the field behind the ballpark on Friday, September 3rd from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. The nature topic is Earth and Sky of Miamia Homelands. Learn about the Miamia culture and their lunar calendar while enjoying a live acoustic music performance. Celebrate Indiana Archaeology Month at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, September 4th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Participate in an archaeological dig at a dig site from 10 to 11 a.m. Other programs will include relics from the past, pottery from the past, and piecing together history. The ever-popular Flora Field Day is scheduled at the Cutright State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Tuesday, September 7th from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. Work on your flora identification skills with a naturalist using an application of an ID key, which opens the door to identifying thousands of species. Bring a copy of Newcomb's Wildflower Guide if you have one, insect repellent, and water. Sign up by September 4th at http colon slash slash bit dot ly slash flora field dash scp 2021. The Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department is offering a Navigation, the Art of Finding Yourself program on Saturday, September the 11th from 3.30 to 5 p.m. at the Wapahani Mountain Bike Park. Learn tools of navigation from basic to advanced using the sun, moon, stars, trees, plants, erosion, and animals to determine direction and time to find resources like food and water. Register by September the 7th at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. Take a challenge and plan to participate in the Then and Now Challenge at the Payne Town Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Sunday, September 12th from 10 to 11.30 a.m. Drop by the campground playground to see if you can match up historic images of locations at Monroe Lake with recent photos of those same sites. See what has changed and what has stayed the same.
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. David Lyman assembled the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly, that's me, compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana.